I mean, how awesome is it that it turned out that it was just the perfect spot? You know, we didn't, we could have gone somewhere else and we actually considered because we were really wanting to jump into the wine industry. I, I knew in my undergrad, this was what I was going to do. I was going to make wine. And, and like at that point with Carl and I and our credentials and everything, we were like, dude, we're going to make wine. Where are we going? Are we, should we do this here? And, and as we dug whole, you know, pits in the vineyard and like looked at the whole thing, all of what he just told you, um, we're like, oh my God, you know, this is it. And how cool is it that we have such ties, you know, emotionally to the ground and um, pretty sweet. On this week's episode, we welcome Coco and Carl Umaker, owners and winemakers of Lewiston's Clearwater Canyon Cellars. The Umakers have a beautiful vineyard and winery situated on top of Gun Club Road facing the Lewiston Hill. This majestic landscape has been in Coco's family for generations and is a recognized hundred-year farm. The passion this couple has for winemaking shines through when they talk about their journey from laboratory scientists to the hands-on science of winemaking. Clearwater Canyon Cellars is not only continuing a storied legacy of winemaking in the Lewis-Clark Valley, but are also instrumental in shaping the culture of the Lewis-Clark wine industry. Without the Umaker's hard work, the landscape of wine in our region would not be the same. So pull up a chair, pop the cork on your favorite bottle, and listen to history in the making of wine in the LCV. Welcome, Coco and Carl Umaker of Clearwater Canyon Cellars. Did I get that correct? Yes. Uh, it's awesome to have you guys on. We're excited to have you on and talk about wine and maybe some other interesting stuff as well. Sure. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. How are you guys today? Good. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's our day off, so we're just kind of running around the farm and the vineyard, and it's a good day. Kind of nice. taking a Nice. Yeah. We, we appreciate you guys being our, our guinea pigs. This is our first Zoom episode that we've done so far. So so it's going to be a... Yeah, I'm fun. excited. We've got it uh, We've got it all set up, and I hope the sound quality turns out better than just a regular Zoom thing. I've kind of working a little bit of studio magic over here. I'm sorry you guys can't actually come and see the studio, and I can offer you a Snapple, but that's all right. <laughs> um we are excited to have you, and though I, I have a little bit of experience. I love your guys's tasting room and and wine. Well, it's not really a tasting room; it's just like a wine storage area that you you do those events every once in a while where people can come try your new wines. And I've been lucky enough to play music there every now and again. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm pretty sure you have my mother-in-law's favorite wines and she is a <laughs> club member or whatever. You guys can tell us about your membership program uh, in a bit. But uh, thank you again for coming. And I love your little, your place and it's beautiful. You have an awesome view. Uh, why don't you tell people where that's at and kind of some of these events that I was talking about? Cool. So um, we are actually, so we're located up at the top of Gun Club Road. So um, 
this is so gun club road is one of those magical streets in lewiston that you're traveling along and then all of a sudden it changes to a different name so as you get to the top of gun club road it magically turns into 10th street so we're actually um at 3143 10th street right at the top of gun club road so um a lot of you have probably seen it hopefully a lot of you have been here if you haven't you gotta come check us out but that um, so this piece of property has actually um, been in my family for over a hundred years. Um, my great grandpa, my great grandparents, George and Irene Nichols, purchased this ground from the Mounts family back in 1916. So, um, and the Mounts family were the first owners. Oh wow! So um, they actually purchased it, I believe, as part of the Homestead Act. Lived here and um, built a house here. Um, there are actually two different homes on the property. There was one initially down in this little draw. So if someone's at the winery and they are looking east, there's this kind of raggedy little draw and there used to be a, a home down in there. And then the Mounts has built a, a newer place um, up here closer to 10th Street. And that's, that's what my family moved into in 1916. Um, and my, it's kind of a cool story. Like my great grandparents purchased it. And then my great grandfather, George died like four years after they moved here and oh, wow. left Irene and four little kids. And, uh, I'm, you know, here on the farm during the depression and, um, strong woman. Had, yeah. We had a mortgage and all of it. It was scary times. Um, he died of an appendicitis super random. Oh, um, so, you know, it's, um, been in the family since then. Um, it's passed on to my grandfather then who is the youngest of the four kids. Um, he, so Ralph Nichols, which probably a lot of people in the Valley, um, still alive today, know him or knew him. He's, he passed on in 2011. Um, and then he passed the farm on to my aunt and my mom and, um, and we are essentially kind of managing the farm now, um, and, but renting <laughs> from, from my family. So when they're, which they're awesome landlords. Um, so Carl and I started the farm, started the, the vineyard aspect of this back in 2003. Um, we, and so my grandfather was still living then. And so it was him that we had to proposition and, right. uh, you know, we actually thought my grandfather was going to completely shoot us down. Um, nobody was growing grapes. Well, I shouldn't say no one, but there wasn't really a commercial vineyard in the valley at that time. Um, there had been one down where Coulter's Creek is, and that vineyard was still alive, but nobody was commercially managing it anymore. And there were a few little plots here and there, but um, really, I mean, the contemporary wine industry had not started yet. Right. So, well, what what was being grown? What was the crop before wine on this farm? Uh, what kind of things were grown before you guys uh, put the grapes in? It was wheat, yeah, um, wheat and cattle for the most part. You know, over those years, um, it's definitely reinvented itself a few times. So when my great grandparents came, it was mainly wheat, and then when my grandfather took the reins from his mom, he developed a Hereford cattle operation here. And then when he retired, he sold the herd. I think there were a few years where it was the the green peas. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. The pea plant. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we had quite a bit of, you know, significant amount of orchard here at one time. 
years ago. Um, we even grew head lettuce at one point. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it's been, we've been dynamic, which is, I think, a commonality for a lot of old farms that are still functioning. You know, it's the classic, like, either change or die. Um, so, you know, and each generation has to find their passion project. And so grandpa had his cattle and had to pitch that to his mom. And so when we were like, Hey grandpa, you know, we love the farm too. We like to make a go of it, but we want to plant grapes. And he was like, okay, (laughs) you can start with that quarter acre over there. And we did. And at first, like he totally, like people would come by and be like, Ralph, what you guys planting over here? And he'd be like, I don't know. That's like the kid's project or something. Um, and we a quarter of acre—that's that's not a whole lot of ground to grow. So you guys must have just been doing pretty small batches at that point. So Clearwater Canyon, yeah, yeah exactly. So Clearwater Canyon and Umaker Vineyard. So our estate vineyard here is Umaker Vineyard, and it's right outside the winery. Umaker Vineyard and Clearwater Canyon, um, at least at that time, were like two totally separate businesses. So um, we started Clearwater Canyon with three other couples. And originally it was in a small garage near Camelot school. And then it moved down to the port of Lewiston and slowly Carl and I developed the vineyard. And of course we were selling our grapes to Clearwater Canyon, which where I was the winemaker. Um, and in 2010, we bought our partners out. Um, it was not a hostile takeover. We're still all buddies. Um, it was just time. And, um, and then a few in 2016, we were finally able to bring the winery home to the vineyard, which was pretty sweet. Yeah, it's um, it's really cool because you guys do you make all the um, you make all the wine at, at that building on top of Gun Club now, right? So that must yeah. be really nice having all your grapes just right there where you make the wine. You don't have to worry about transporting it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and and maybe you guys could talk about sort of the first varieties of grapes that you grew and wines that you produced and, and how you got into doing into, into the winemaking industry. Um, so the, the first plot of grapes that we planted was, um, mostly Merlot. So it was, uh, 240 vines and, um, and it had probably, it was probably 90, 90% Merlot and, um, a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon and then a very little bit of Cabernet Franc. I mean, there were like five vines of Cabernet Franc. So we had a, a pretty good, um, like Bordeaux blend, uh, set up for us. Um, and, and we thought that those varieties would do pretty well here. You know, it was, we're always kind of guessing cause nobody, nobody really knew. Um, and, um, but, but we saw what was, was happening in Walla Walla and, and, you know, there was a lot of acclaim over there with their, their vineyards and their, their wines. Um, and, and it was, it was kind of like, you know, Coco and I looking at each other going, why is it not happening over here in Lewiston? You know, this is, this is where the, the industry really, really took off, you know, before prohibition. And so, um, yeah, my grandma but, actually lives on Schaefer Drive, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was a Jacob Schaefer or William Schaefer, somebody Schaefer. He, she, they actually live in his old house that was a winery slash butcher's place. 
Wow. Yeah. So this valley does have a history of wine, even if it's not, you know, it's not like Northern California's history or anything, but it's nice to see it get revived and, and that you guys came in and were able to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like in, uh, so we planted the, the first block in 2003 and then in 2005, um, we were able to harvest the first wine from there. And it was, it was only one barrel of wine, but, um, but we made a, a barrel of Merlot from that, from that block. And, uh, so, and that was really the first, the first wine that had been made, um, with, with, I guess we didn't really call it Lewis Clark Valley grapes, but that's what it was back then, you know, cause we didn't have the, the viticultural area designation. Okay. Um, we had to call it Idaho. But was the first time uh, since prohibition that a grape, that a wine had been made entirely from Lewis Clark Valley grown fruit in the Valley, in the Valley. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So did either of you sort of develop this winemaking as a hobby or like as a profession prior to this, or was that kind of your first go at it? You just thought like, we love wine. We want to give it a try. For sure. This is so when we, when we planted that first block, I was 22 Mm -hmm. and actually we'd started planning it and I was not even 20 yet. And so there was actually like, if we had, of course, we were super poor as well, so that was a limiting factor. But if it, we had actually had money, there actually would have been a discussion of, can I hold with Carl a winery license and not be of age? Probably not. <laughs> um, but um, we, so we're both scientists. Carl's a chemist in his undergrad. And then he actually came out here to Idaho to study soils at University of Idaho. Nice. Carl, also a <laughs> chemist, bachelor's degree. Nice. Right. That's right. LCSE, right? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I just finished uh, my master's from WSU for environmental engineering. Right wow. on. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll talk about what you did in grad school, too, in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not everything. <laughs> no, no, no. God, no. We had an episode where I talked about what I did in grad school, and I left a lot out. You could be sure of that. We'll talk about just the slimy stuff. Just the slimy stuff. <laughs> Okay, so but Carl, you did you came to U of I to do soil science. So where were you before that? Where did you where were you, where were you born and raised? I I grew up in Arkansas, um, in the Ozarks. Ah, um, good so show. Hilly hilly territory. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows what the Ozarks right now. <laughs> nobody nobody used to, but now they do. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a pretty ideal place to grow up back then. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of. Um, there's a lot more population there now, um, of course, but grew up riding a mountain bike, you know, down the trails there and, um, racing a little bit and, um, went to, uh, university of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And that just happened to be in the same town that I grew up in. Um, so I got my chemistry degree there and then I figured, you know, it's probably about time that I take a leap and, and get a new experience, you know, um, find a new experience outside of this town that I grew up in. And, uh, and so Idaho just was the, was the place, you know, um, they had a great soils program and, um, and was doing research in, in the, the field that I wanted to, to, 
go for. So, um, so I moved up here. Yeah, well, if you want to grow good grapes, I'm sure it all starts with good soil. So being a soil scientist must come in very handy. <laughs> it does, for sure. Yeah. So is there, yeah. you know, and this is something I've been curious about since the wine industry has sort of started to take off more and more in the valley here. Um, you mentioned before the Walla Walla area has, of course, a really successful wine industry. Is there sort of overlap between our soil or or what is it that makes um, our region particularly suited for growing grapes? Um, and Walla Walla as well. Yeah, we, you know, both Walla Walla and, and here have have pretty incredible soils, I would say for grapes. Um, some, some of these soils are, you know, in the case of our Valley, they're extremely variable. Um, but like where our vineyard is, is actually, uh, it has, it's a very, it's a deep silt loam soil. Um, kind of what you might find, expect to find like on the Palouse, um, kind of same, same features. Um, very, uh, it has a calcium layer as you get down lower in it. Um, and it's, it's actually, um, the same exact soil is, uh, soil series is what you find over in Walla Walla as well. And oh. some of their top notch vineyards. Um, but I, I think what, what really, um, helps these two areas grow grapes is you, the, the placement of the vineyards. I mean, you, you, in the, in the Northwest here, you really have to work on the, the cold air drainage. I mean, because we're so far Northern in latitude, um, cold air drainage is a big deal. And, and so, and really quick cold air drainage. So like, uh, it's like hot air rises, cold air sinks. So if you ever open your freezer and the smoke pours out and falls to the ground, that's right. kind of the same thing that happens at night. If you're on a hill, that cold air will actually flow like water down the hill. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what you want. You don't want to be at the bottom of the hill where it, mm -hmm. where it pools up. Right. If you go to like, Napa, <laughs> if you go to Napa Valley, um, we've done this a few times. We just marvel because they, they're able to plant their vineyards on the bottom of the valley like where all the cold air would settle but they can do that because it's um it's much more moderated there here um if you do that your vineyard's not going to do well you have to you don't want to be the lowest spot hmm. um unless you have a body of water very close by like really close and but even here right. like if you yeah. like the clear water isn't enough to save you you'd have to you have to be up off the river a little bit hmm. ideally ideally yeah gotcha and and let's see if I'm remembering correctly, you guys, it, it's kind of sloped. Is it like a northeast facing slope that you grow your grapes on? I would, is yeah, it, I would. Yeah, north north northeast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And I and I think that that's pretty ideal too in terms of um, the sun exposure because you don't you don't ever it's kind of sloped away from the sun. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you might think that would be a cold, but it, a cold slope. Right. But it, it's not sloped enough that you get shading with the sun. And and actually in the um, in the like June and the solstice, let's say um, in, in June, the sun will be 
will have such long days that it actually, you know, starts in, you know, the sunrises in the, in the northeast and sets in the northwest. And so you get that full length of sun, like all the way around. Whereas if we were on like a steep south slope, let's say, like even on the Lewiston Hill, we wouldn't get the morning sun and we wouldn't get the evening sun. We would just get really intense sun during the, the middle part of the day. Hmm. Um, if it was a south slope. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's been in the family for hundreds of, or a hundred years, right? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, how awesome is it that it turned out that it was just the perfect spot? You know, we didn't, we could have gone somewhere else and we actually considered because we were really wanting to jump into the wine industry. I, I have been so kind of back on the question of like, how do we get here? Right. Yeah. I knew, right. I knew in my undergrad, this was what I was going to do. I was going to make wine and um, started taking classes. So my undergrad was at U of I and I double majored microbiology, molecular biology and biochem at U of I. And my last semester, I was able to swap classes, some of my electives with WSU's enology program. Mm-hmm. Fell in love. I mean, it was hook, line and sinker. And then I went on and did my PhD at WSU in wine microbiology and like at that point with Carl and I and our credentials and everything, we were like, dude, we're going to make wine. Where are we going? Are we, should we do this here? And, and as we dug whole, you know, pits in the vineyard and like looked at the whole thing, all of what he just told you, um, we're like, oh my God, you know, this is it. And how cool is it that we have such ties, you know, emotionally to the ground and um, pretty sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. It was meant to be, it sounds like. So so from that initial batch of wines and varieties that you guys started with, are you still kind of working with something around that same parameter or are you, are you doing something totally different now? So um, we've expanded vineyard now. It's about seven acres and we work with two other vineyards in the valley, one in Clarkston, the Arnett Vineyard, which is on, um, on 13th Street. So if you're going south on 13th, it's just on the um, kind of on the base of the Clarkston Heights there. Um, That's pretty near where we are right now. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Okay. And so then um, another, so the other vineyard we work with is down on the Grand Ronde. So if you go up from where the Grand Ronde comes into the snake at Heller's Bar, you go up the Grand Ronde about, what, 15 miles maybe? Like river miles? No, yeah, maybe half that. Okay. It seems long because the road is like, yeah. yeah, the road gets a little bit sketchy after you go past <laughs> yeah. Teller Bar. It's a little bit rough drive. But um, anyway, the Rock and Jay Vineyard is up there. And those are our three main local vineyards. Um, and amongst them, um, in terms of varietals, the majority of the wine we make locally is um, Cabernet, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Syrah, um, a little bit of Chardonnay from here. Into, we make that into our Loxaw blend. Um, Malbec. Did I say Malbec already? I'm not sure, but no, but it's a good one. It's fun. Yeah, it's a fun varietal. So, like the five classic Bordeaux varietals plus Syrah and Chardonnay are probably our, our you know our main main varietals here. And then we 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 do dip outside the valley for um, a few things, but when we do, it's you know with great purpose. Um, the vineyards that we work with outside the valley are all very different in terms of their 
um, their soils, their aspect, elevation, and they're spread out from each other enough that it's like natural insurance. Like hopefully if something happens to the Rock and Jay Vineyard, it's not going to happen at Umaker, like in terms of a hailstorm or a fire or, you know, all the things that have happened over the last 16 years <laughs> of making wine. Um, so, yeah. That's really smart to, to have that approach to it. And uh, like you said, give yourself sort of that insurance. Um, I noticed that you guys have uh, bodies of water tied into a lot of the different names like Clearwater, Locksaw, and you have the Ronde as well. Are, are, are both of you sort of passionate about our rivers or recreationalists on the rivers there? I, I know I am because I fly fish a lot, but I just noticed that. I was curious about that. Yeah, definitely. We're, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I mean, there's there's no doubt that we are in an incredible area of moving water, right? There's just so many rivers and so much water going through this valley. It's incredible. And, um, and I'm, you know, and it's, and it's a pretty fairly small, narrow valley, right? Like if you, if you go west of here, then you, you go into a little bit broader, you know, much broader valleys typically, you know? Um, and so, so I think, you know, the rivers definitely have a huge, play a huge part of even the, the climate. Yeah. From a a winemaking perspective. Yeah. It's a, it's major. And we are um, huge outdoorsmen. Carl and I are simple. Like when we have time off, that's what we were doing this morning is we went for a hike and we too love fishing and, um, you know, we're outside all the time. Did you, uh, Carl, did you grow up near the White River by chance? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. It's yeah. it's really famous uh, for its brown trout fisheries. Oh, uh, yeah. I'd like yeah. to go and uh, check that out one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, never, I never really went trout fishing, though. Yeah. In that but, river. But, yeah, but, but fished quite a bit on that river, actually, yeah. Bass mostly, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, Brian was mentioning sort of the space. Could you talk more about the space and sort of your facility and, and how people from the public can come and interact with you and your and try out your wines? And, um, sure. Brian also mentioned some music events that you have there, if you could. Yeah, every once in a while, that. I think you'll have new, you'll have releases and, and, and some sort of tasting stuff. I know you do some stuff for the public and some stuff for your wine club members and Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Probably the majority of the events, events we do are like wine club only. Um, but we do do um, at least two public events in the year. And that is, um, that is the, during our spring and fall release. Um, so we'll invite the public in to, to taste our, the new wines that we've made. And um and hopefully they enjoy those. Um, but, but we're also open for tasting. Um, not now, obviously, but we, we hope to be later on this summer open for tasting. I think May 30th. Um, so we're classified as a bar. So I think May 30th, we're allowed to open again. Um, for now we're just, we're open curbside Tuesday through Saturday from 9am until six o'clock at night, which is, very different than what we normally have done in the past. Like 
typically we're only open Fridays and Saturdays, noon to five for tasting and that's it. And then always by appointment. Um, Cause normally everybody had to work during the week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not as much of that going on. <laughs> but, but now people can buy wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is like not uncommon now to have someone out here waiting in the curbside parking lot at 9am on a Wednesday. <laughs> it is so weird. Like the light, I mean, I'm, we're grateful, but you know, we're, the world has changed. You know, and I think um, it's going to be a long time before we let people back in, you know, in large numbers in the winery, um, at least in the tasting room for sure, because it's so tiny. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've been here. It's a small space. So I think initially what we're going to do is just open up outside and, and do an outside bar. Yeah, you have a beautiful outdoor area. Yep. It yeah. Looks out on the vineyard, the Lewiston Hill and... It's really nice, so I think yeah. we'll just keep it outside. And your space isn't so small, but you've got a cram full of your wine barrels. So how many, how many barrels of wine uh, do you guys keep in there? And I know it's probably all different, but like, how long do you age some of these wines? Oh my gosh! You know, we've we've started to play and experiment more in the last couple of years, more than we ever have, like with aging and trials of different oak and fermentation and yeast different yeast. Of course, I'm a microbiologist, so you'd expect that I'm, I'm playing with microbes in there all the time. I don't know. We probably have um, north of a little over 300 barrels or so in there right now, um, but we're still tiny. That sounds like a lot, but we're, we produce about 4,500 cases a year, which if you walk into Al, like Albertsons and look at the shelf, like most of the, you know, typical grocery store shelf wines that are like under $10, you know, it's not uncommon for that to be like 4,500 cases of that wine from some of these big brands and 4,500 cases, is everything we do in a year, <laughs> all the wines. Um, we sell right now, we're about 80% of our production goes to our wine club, which is like our family and anyone can be part of it. Um, it's just people that literally like we're making wine for them. We're their winemakers. And, um, and once a year or twice a year, or more if they want, but at least twice a year, they come and pick up wines at the releases. And it's just a really genuine, cool way to make wine when, um, you know, like when we're making wines now, we'll be like, oh man, um, the Grimms are going to love this one. Like we know, you know, we know that how, what they like, um, what they're into and it, um, you get the positive feedback too. It's not like you just work your heart and soul into this wine and then stick it on a shelf and never know. But when people come and get it from you and you're communicating with them, they're like, you know, you get that reinforcement, which is, which is important. Well, and it's a really cool connection to place and people also like just being able to have the sort of give and take between our local surroundings and, and your production is really, really cool. And I don't think it's often something that people would probably get to do as, as a winemaker, like you said, there's probably, you know, 4,500 cases of XYZ going out to who knows where, and you don't have any sort of connection to these people. And that's, that's really neat. Yeah. Um, so have you guys sort of branched out into some of these other kind of lesser known varieties of wine at any point? Like when we had Mark in, he was talking about Albarino, Albarino and Sanso or have you kind of just found what you like and you kind of stay within that realm? So we definitely have slowly um, 
you know, investigate, you know, embrace some of these more obscure varietals. But I think for us, like, um, we don't jump around vineyards. Um, for one, when you've, you know, th- this Yumaker vineyard, what's here will be here and our kids will make wine with it. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously we're in the long haul for Yumaker vineyard and Rock and Jay and Arnett. Like when we planted those vineyards, those Bordeaux, Bordeaux varietals, I mean, we're, we're sticking with that. Um, as we drink other people's wines, you start to get inspired. And so, um, like Mark, we also love Albarino. So we went after drinking other people's Albarinos and loving them. We finally, a few years back, hunted down an Albarino vineyard and grower. And it takes time for us to make a decision like that. Um, because we kind of have the mindset of like, once we've, um, you know, weaseled our way into a block that we love it's got to be the people that we love the site the varietal all of it has to be set or we won't do it and so it takes a lot of time like it took us a few years to find that alberino block and we finally did and it's um, the crawford vineyard and these guys are awesome it's not local it's not lewis clark valley it's actually um over kind of near prosser and um and so the carminiere is the other one so years ago same thing found this amazing family growing Carminier up in the Horse Heaven Hills, um, the Bechtel family. And um, Carminier is a strange varietal. It used to be a Bordeaux varietal, and then it actually, um, they thought, became extinct totally from the face of the earth. Um, back in, in Europe, there was a insect that kind of, st- we should do, a, you, got, you guys should do a podcast on Phloxera. So Phloxera <laughs> is this little insect that chooses on the roots of vines and it was introduced into the European industry back in the 1800s and from America, from us. Yeah. <laughs> Although they did it to themselves. Like the French actually brought this cool grape they found in America back to France. They're like, check it out. And they planted it. And then they like inoculated themselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's very, kind of a, that happened, seemed to have happened a lot back in the day. So, so sad anyway. <laughs> but in the end we saved them because they found out that if they grafted their European grapes on this same exact rootstock that infected them, um, you know, the vines were resistant. But during that time, um, Carminiere got wiped out from Europe. And it wasn't until maybe 50 years ago that Carminiere was rediscovered down in um, Chile amongst some of these Merlot vines, actually. Hmm. And um, since then has seen a revival. And we love it. Like drinking other people's Carminiere. We're, Carl and I both are huge fans of um, South American wines. And um, so that was one of those things. Like we love the Finney Hill gang. Um, 2006, they planted Carm and we've been making it ever since. And it's been a cult wine for us. Wow. So what are some of the notes on the Carminier? It's a red wine. Um... Yeah, it's like pepper. You put your notes. So for me, um, and this is like definitely a winemaker style. Like if, if the Carminier doesn't make me want to literally sneeze when I put my nose in the glass, <laughs> it's like not good enough. That's good to and, know. Um, like during harvest when the grapes are fermenting and I'm walking around the bins, which I'm about as tall as a bin. So my nose is like right there at that level. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm a reasonable winemaker because I'm like right, I, I'm right in that zone. I don't even have to struggle to smell the bins. But um, oh my gosh, walking past the Carminiera bins, it's just billowing with like black pepper and sometimes a jalapeno character which yeah, is kind of cool. that sounds awesome that's right up my alley so what's yeah. an what's an ideal food pairing for that wine 
lamb, stinky cheese, yeah. uh, grilled veggies with a little, you know, blackening on there. Um, but it's crazy, you know, for those that are listening that have never had a Carmenere, um, it is life changing, <laughs> like seriously life changing. Please come like my car, like I, my favorite thing in life is pouring Carmenere for people that have never had it. Please come <laughs> smell my wine. <laughs> yes. Smell it, taste it. And it's just like plush and black and dark and just huh. I think it's going to like hit you hard when you well, put it in your mouth. I'm excited to try it. I'm I'm a total wine novice. Yeah, so I'm, I'm May 30th, maybe we'll it. go up and we'll, we'll take a sniff and a taste. Yeah. It sounds awesome. We'll do immersion therapy. We'll hold you by your ankles and just <laughs> in. I'm just kidding. We don't do that. Actually. Oh, man. Well, you did it once. No, I'm just joking. Um, that's so fun. It's so much fun to listen to how much you guys like love everything about what you do from the soil to the smell at the end i mean that's that's really cool it's always fun to talk to people who are passionate about what they do and and just it's obvious listening to you guys um but here's my awkward transition of speaking of soil (laughs) are you going to talk about carl's middens yeah i'd love to talk about carl's middens Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans, you can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. Now back to the show. Um, we did an episode, our anomalies episode. I don't remember what number it is, uh, but we did. We talked a little bit about the Plus Earthworm, and when we were looking it up, it said uh, Carl Umaker, U of I, was on one uh, part of the research team in the 1980s that found a Plus Earthworm. And and again, I'll just do a brief recap. Uh, the Plus Earthworm, uh, it's it's well, I'll let Carl do the recap because he knows all about it. But it's. Uh, <laughs> A lot of people, there's a difference between saying I found a Palouse earthworm and actually scientifically documenting that you've found a Palouse earthworm, right? Sure, sure. Um, and you actually discovered that in the mid two, or in the 2000s, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, our, the, I don't know it, the dates. Our, our research group. So uh, there was a graduate student um, that was, that was doing her work on, um, in, uh, native Palouse Prairie, um, up near, uh, WSU. It was actually, yeah, it was in Washington. Um, but, um, she was doing her research up there and just, um, doing research on other earthworms, actually. Um, more of these like European invasive worms, um, that we all know of as the earthworms we see now, um, the red worms and, and whatnot. Um, and, and came across the this worm that was obviously very different, and um, it's like almost like pearl white in appearance. Yeah, that was one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to know: is what? How do you know if you if it's just a really big earthworm or if it is a Palouse earthworm? Um, so normally, the you know. It's it's a pretty striking difference. I mean, if it's it's the the giant blue earthworms are usually going to be you know depending on if it's a, if it's an adult, it's usually going to be 
one of the largest earthworms you've ever seen in your life, probably. Like the size um, of your thumb. <laughs> it'll oh, be wow. a little, it'll that usually is... be a little thicker um, than than like a, a very large night crawler, um, and and maybe close to about the same length, if not a little longer. Um, that's definitely the adults are are kind of pretty substantial. Like you can when you pick them up and hold them in your hand, they're they're it, you can feel the weight. But Carl, when, when NPR interviewed you and they asked how long is an actual Pluse earthworm, what was your response? <laughs> but it depended on the temperature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little cold out that morning. What are you going to do? Right, right. <laughs> no, I, okay, so wait a minute. <laughs> I think a lot of the, the earthworm stories back in the day, you know, um, are, well, obviously, it seems like they used to be a lot more prevalent in the area. Well, I think native like, prairie land used to be a little bit more prevalent in the area, too. Yeah, probably so. Yep, yep. Um, but, you know, and, and they're, they're actually suited to, to be in a little bit rockier areas. Um, and, and I think that's also maybe a reason why they haven't been out-competed um, in, in some of these little areas that we find them in still today, um, is that they've adapt, they've, they have their niche up there, you know, um, they have different, different musculatures, um, where, uh, you can think of like the, the night crawler as this big kind of bulky, like muscly guy, right? Um, the, the Pluse earthworms are more, they, their muscles can like detach a little bit and they move differently. Um, so, so like if you have a bunch of small rocks in the soil, they can like go around those rocks and, you know, their burrows can, can kind of zigzag down. Whereas the night crawler really likes to just go straight down. Sort of the um, path of least resistance instead of yeah. navigating through okay. a maze of things. So they don't smell like lilacs. That's not. <laughs> well, you know, I. That's just been my experience, but the, the people that have have, said that I I trust that, that they have they have also they have done that and smelled that so. Um, I, I definitely don't dispute that. I so just it's never, possible. Okay. I never, I never had the earthworms spit at me. I never had, and I did try to smell them, and I didn't get a lilac it or, a, like or a lily or anything. <laughs> it, yeah, it smelled like worm. No, okay. but so being married to a guy that was on the team that rediscovered the earthworm. So were you were you actually out in the field when Yaniria sliced through the first? I, I wasn't. Um, she brought it back to the lab and, you know, it was obviously she, very different. Was she like, what, what is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> how did that go down? Like, was she like holding this piece of like a white worm and go like, the, all the lab technicians are all standing around it wide eyed? Well, you know, I think we, we had an idea that they might be around in some of these areas that we were doing research in, but, um, but that really, that wasn't our focus yet at that point, you know, cause obviously we hadn't found any, we just had found the, the normal European earthworms. Um, and so, 
So that, that wasn't our focus at all. So. Yeah. But so, but when you found that, yeah. it was the first, then you did the genetics on it and it was the first documented case in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it was the, yeah, we, we had it identified and yeah, it went crazy on the internet. Carl would come <laughs> home exhausted from all the media attention, which is not something you expect when you're married to a soil scientist. <laughs> right. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Cause it hadn't been, you know, found and documented for years. Uh, yeah. That's kind of yeah. crazy. And, but also, so you guys found, you found cocoons and when you hatched more, right? We felt, well, we felt like we had found cocoons. Okay. Um, I think we did, but it's it's a difficult thing to actually like raise worms in captivity, um, especially worms like the giant plus earthworm. I mean, you can you can raise compost worms, and that's a whole nother ball game. But um, but these worms, you know, they like to they like to have permanent vertical burrows, and they they like to be left alone, right? And so there's very little way that you can study them in lab, you know, and leave them alone and raise them, you know, have them survive. Um, and have them survive at the same time. But you did, you found a little, uh, what do you call them? Cocoon? Yeah, the cocoons. You found cocoons that you believed that were Pluse earthworm cocoons, and then you yeah. did hatch them, right? Right. And the wor- little worm that came out, how long did it live <laughs> for before it croaked? <laughs> It, they didn't live that long, oh. so unfortunately. So, um, so what are what are the middens that you that you referenced earlier? What, what uh, is that? Uh, <laughs> so the middens are just um, there. It's it's kind of another worm for burrows. Oh, okay. So, um, a lot of times, you know, if you're if you're just kind of looking around the like your yard or or whatever, you'll find these little little earthworm piles of earthworm castings. And if it, if it's a large enough worm, maybe it like a night crawler, it will sometimes have pulled pieces of grass or leaves or sticks or vegetation around that, that permanent vertical burrow that it lives in. Hmm. Which I mentioned it partly because um, in our vineyard, we actually do not do any dis- um, disturbance of soil underneath the vines. So our soil structure is unchanged and very intact. And so the worm activity out there is crazy. And um, we... I don't think we have any loose earthworms out there. But. <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. But the middens are everywhere. And once it, it's one of my favorite things to do to sh- when we're picking grapes with kids is to show them what the middens look like. And it's something that, like, unless you've had someone show you, you could look past it and not realize they're so cool. And you can, you know, that same worm will keep coming and using that same, well, they're down in that little burrow. And they come out and they come back in and come out and come back in and, you know, drag all this stuff. And it kind of piles up around the entrance to their burrow and essentially mulches it. Wow. And keeps it wet. That's awesome. It's so cool. I'm going to start referencing my basement as my midden. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, you're down there a lot. You come out, you come back in, you drag things yeah. towards it, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's cool. so cool. You, that you, were being, you just come out of the basement when it rains. 
Yeah. <laughs> like a worm. <laughs> That's so neat that you're able to be a part of that. <laughs> yeah. So Coco actually, uh, um, she actually dug earthworm pits with me. So it almost, this was pre-marriage. I needed a job, obviously, desperately. And so I was a... She was at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> I mean, one thing you missed in the story, so actually... Once they found that worm, they then got this grant to study the um, you know population of Palouse earthworms, and so they ran all over the place trying to yeah. to, and that's when Carl got heavily involved. Is you know the graduate student was the one who discovered it really, but then that project got handed to Carl, and it's an interesting question. I thought, like, how do you assess the population of something that's under the ground? So he devised all these strange devices to like lure the worms out of the soil. I was literally married to like a, a guy that was making huge electric shock therapy things for the soil <laughs> with like multiple car batteries to, to tease them up, not kill them, but just tease them up out of the soil. I was certain he was going to get electrocuted. <laughs> I was pretty certain I was going to get electrocuted too. <laughs> My dad had made these sort of like rods that had wooden handles on them and like a plug-in from, I want to say, like an old washer or dryer or something like that. And it was the same kind of idea. It was these rods that you put into the ground that would scare up the night crawlers and we'd go gather them up and put them in a little cup and take them fishing. But yeah, I thought that was funny when, uh, when we were researching the episode that you use something semi similar to that. I'm sure a little bit more refined, <laughs> quite a bit more refined, but, but yeah. But so, not only that, Carl, didn't you actually bring in an expert that like made this, um, like rub sticks together to create a vibration? Um, or did you do that? That was part of the, so one of the grants that we worked under was, was part of the Idaho fishing game. Um, and their non-game biologist um, wanted to to test. We had we had seen videos of like down in uh, northern Florida. They there's people down there that actually hunt worms, and they they do what's called worm grunting, hmm. and they they basically pound a stake <laughs> into the ground, and then they have this piece that rolls over the stake. And kind of, if, if you do it just right, it kind of makes this like weird, like very low frequency, like grunt. Okay. And, um, and that scares the worms up to the top hmm. if you do it right. Did you ever get a Palouse earthworm to come out of the soil with that? No. We, <laughs> how about another worm, like a different worm? I think we did a, a different worm, yeah. Like an earthworm. Yeah. yeah. So what were they, why, why were they trying to capture worms there in Florida? Like for... Uh, for fishing. Oh, that just was, for fishing. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Huh. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then finally, if nothing else works, you can break out the worm pheromones and then just go out and start wriggling around, right? <laughs> <laughs> we never tried that. <laughs> well, you should have had me on your team. I don't know. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah, so, so it, it was a big deal for a little while, you know, because it was endangered species potentially. Yeah. Cause it never actually made it on the endangered species list. Is that correct? Because, no, because there wasn't we, enough known. It was looking like we were moving in that direction, which was 
which was scary actually. Um, but, but we ended up finding them over a population over near Leavenworth actually uh, in, in Washington. Well, wasn't it sort of a point of contention between various stakeholders with like farmers that, that didn't want to see the earthworm or the Palouse earthworm be endangered because it might affect their livelihood on the Palouse? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's when the media kind of jumped in, right? Yeah. And it, it kind of blew up. We were they're, on the, they're actually kind of suited to living in like fir forests, aren't they? Um, they can they can live in like uh, ponderosa pine. Yeah. Uh, huh. If you have like a ponderosa pine canopy with like the arrow arrow leaf, uh, balsamariza, that's that's like perfect habitat for the giant flu earthworm around here. And you found a bunch near Leavenworth. You were saying. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yeah. very, very. Um, uh, very intact populations over there. Yeah. And they made the Stephen Colbert report. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, we're going to YouTube that. Maybe I'll uh, snag a clip of the audio and, and insert it somewhere. <laughs> um, they actually refer to Carl and his group of scientists that were on the team as no fun ologists. A team of no fun ologists. For demystifying the legend of the Palouse earthworm, <laughs> just like unicorns and everything else that's cool. Wag my finger at scientists for destroying the legend of the giant Palouse earthworm, a creature that once thrived on the Idaho prairies, but had rarely been seen in the last 110 years. And um, so now, whenever Carl is acting like a stick in the mud, I'm like, of course, you're a no funologist. No funologist. Come on. <laughs> That's awesome. That's pretty cool. You've got to be on my favorites. You've got to be on NPR and the Colbert Report. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Stop demystifying our fabled beast scientists. Next, you're going to tell me that unicorns are just horses with bedheads. So neat. Well, we've gotten a little off track from our main topic, but I was so happy to go down that worm road with you. <laughs> that smells like worm. If you ever want to come back, we can do a whole wormisode. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, obviously right now everything's kind of uh, different. We'll say, mm -hmm. uh, but what are some of uh, what are some of the uh, I guess musicians that you've had come in and play for you for your wine releases? I mean, there's not just me, uh, but um, what I'd really like to know besides that is what are some of the other benefits uh, that the wine club members do get? Why would someone be interested, <coughs> besides how delicious your wine is, in becoming a wine club member? And also, how do you become a wine club member? Sure, yeah. <laughs> sure. There's just a small tattoo <laughs> required on the behind the back um, right ear. It doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> nope, and it's no. uh, only visible in black light, so it's fine. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, so we, we really, um, the only big events we do here really are for our wine club. Um, you know, we do open the cellar occasionally for the public, but it's not like what we do for the club. So for these, for the club, we do the two releases and we'll shut down the winery for a week, basically, and, um, and have music and catered food that pairs with the wine. And we'll have all the wines. We should start calling it a festival. Why? I don't know. 
It's a multi-day event, so oh, no. isn't that yeah, a festival? Yeah. I guess I so. Know. But that <laughs> catered food is delicious. <laughs> festival or not, that food it's that a, is there. A is wine really club festival. Um, a wine club <laughs> release, in, um, and we'll taste each of the new wines with the club members. And, um, you know, it's it's not wild. It's pretty um, – it's fun, though, because we have such an eclectic um, club membership and it's really the people that make it, you know, obviously the wine brings everybody together, but it's just the culture of um, releases and, and just the whole vibe are pretty amazing. You know, Brian, you've been there to see it. Um, we bring in our favorite musicians. Brian's one of them. Although like half of why we bring Brian is because of his cute daughter. I mean, they're great, but um, actually cuter every day. Your daughter sitting in your um, guitar case, collecting dollar bills. It helps. I make more with uh, her. <laughs> you might have to get a bigger guitar case here soon. I'm sure she's just start playing bass. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's so fun. It's like for us, some of these wines we've been working on them for two and a half years or longer, and to it's like the big day to to or the big festival or whatever. But the release is like a release emotionally for us too to like finally show these wines to the club and with our wine club. Um, each release, they're invited to come and select six bottles of their choosing. Um, they can always buy more, um, but that's kind of the um, standard, and, and they get a discount on the wine. And um, it's really fun for us to be able to give them that choice. A lot of times with clubs, um, the winery will choose for the members. Um, if they don't choose, we'll choose for them. You know, a lot of people just defer to us to make the selection. Um, and they don't have to choose from the new wines. They can always dip back into something that we have from a previous release. Um, but that those releases are really fun. Um, we also do a barrel tasting in February. So we let the club come in for several days and taste all, all the works. Well, not all, but there'd be a lot of wine to taste. Um, but a few select works in progress straight from the barrel. And um, we usually do a big dinner here um, at the winery for the wine club in the summer. And we do three days of that, um, usually a family style table. It's like eight courses, it's over the top. It's incredible. Um, so bummer with COVID, we had no spring release. It was all done curbside, but, um, but the club's been amazing. We were really, really scared, I'm not gonna lie. Like February, um, it seemed like everybody went down in their little midden and disappeared. <laughs> And they in were never, March. or yeah, I'm sorry, in March. Yeah, in March. And um, and then all of a sudden, everybody showed up and the spring release was, has been awesome. The club showed up and bought the wine that, um, you know, we, even though they couldn't taste it. And I think in some ways it's been more exciting for people to open bottles because they have no <laughs> idea. They just have to trust us. And um, I'm really glad that we are have 16 years down behind us to have built that rapport with these customers that they do trust that the wine is going to be good and that we wouldn't sell them a, um, a rotten apple, you know, it would. And so that's been fun and, and really like, um, really gratifying for people to be like, it's okay, guys, we don't not, we to taste these, like we know it's going to be good. And that just feels so good to have that trust. Um, so hopefully by July, we'll be able to do some kind of dinner with our club. We haven't really made a decision yet. Um, fingers crossed. 
Um, so we'll just go, we'll, we'll watch what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. It's great to see kind of how it, the wine culture in the Valley is kind of growing with the, with you guys and the other tasting rooms that are here. Like you said, you were the first people to grow Lewis Clark Valley wine from Lewis Clark Valley grapes since prohibition. And when we had Mark Weisling in, he was talking about how the wine culture here is is fairly new, but very supportive. And, and that's mm-hmm. really nice to see. Yeah, yeah we're all yeah. pretty good. But oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, just with that sort of in mind that you guys have been around for so long, I, I'm just curious to hear your take as to where you feel like the progression of wine culture and wineries are going to go here in the Valley. Well, I think we're definitely on the right track. I mean, Carl and I, um, you know, it's interesting, right? We're a winery. You'd think maybe from the outside looking in that having competition would be maybe scary, but it, but actually in the wine business, uh, I mean, that's why Carl and I were so worked so hard to get the American viticultural area here established with Coulter's, Mike and Melissa and Sita. Like we, we knew that we would actually, the only way that for us to be taken seriously um, beyond this place um, was to have a true wine region designation. And the greatest validation of what we're doing is to have others come here and be successful with it too. So, um, and the tourism aspect is huge. Like nobody's going to drive all the way. I mean, undoubtedly, many people would drive all the way from Seattle to just visit us. Um, but when there's several of us that are all doing a fantastic job, that's worth the trip. Yeah. Well, and actually I'd like to mention, um, something else you guys have been doing, uh, but, but Clint Hoyland with his Twisted Valley wine tours, we should, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Clint, who actually, I can see his house from my house, which is good. Oh my gosh. You guys send flares. Yeah. Clint is the best. Um, yes, we love him. Um, as a, on so many different levels, um, as a friend, I mean, it's funny, all the little webs between us and Clint. Um, but definitely with his twisted vine wine tours, he's been really, um, a great, um, supporter of the industry, supporty, supporter. And like, you know, when there's a tour, it just brings all of us together because we're coordinating with Clint and with each other. And it just gets that communication going and that, that vibe, exactly the vibe that we need for all of us to be successful. Um, and it's working. I mean, at this point, um, the, you know, the locals are still very much drinking a lot of wine here, but the amount of wine that we ship out to Florida and Maine and Ohio and down to California, which always makes me super happy. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. Like it blows my mind. Um, every time we package up wine to ship off to some place far from here, that these people are engaged and, and really um, interested in the wines we're making and the story of this place and us and our farm and all of it. And I'm sure the other wineries are experiencing this too. Yeah. And, and Clint has set up sort of, uh, you can't do in-person tasting like you mentioned, but you guys were doing uh, the, the zoom uh, tasting, right? Yeah. Carl and I were laughing actually. Um, so zoom tastings, we have a lot of self-control, first of all. I'd like to say, I mean, we own a winery, but it's not like we drink wine all day. But there's something about Zoom tastings. Um, it incites, like, 
more sipping. Uh-huh. I'm really glad that we're not, we're, I'm drinking coffee or actually tea right now. Um, yeah, well, it's almost wine time. It is around three now. We're getting close, <laughs> right. but um, yeah, Clint's been amazing. He is truly a friend of all the wineries here in the Valley. Like everyone loves Clint and he is the only person that would, that can bring a group of people in here and we'll just let him take them into the cellar without any supervision. And he'll ask like, Hey, you know, can I taste anything out of the tanks? I will actually let him operate the sample valve on the tanks unattended. I trust him. Uh, We trust him. He's an amazing, I mean, that's awesome. So you can get a tour not just of our place like that, but he has that rapport with all the wineries. Um, so because of that, he's really bolstered the tourism here for all of us. He's a, he's a key. Clint is super key in the success of the wineries here. Hmm. Yeah. And a, just a great, a fun guy to talk to. I, I see him every time you do a release and he's out running. He's a, he's a runner. So I see him exercising, running past my house every now and again. And he's just a really nice guy. Yep. I highly recommend everyone taking a tour with him. Even if you think you know a lot about the valley and the wineries, we've taken two tours with him now and we learn things that we didn't know. Um, we He even goes into the like non-wine history yep. of the valley too. Yep. Nespers history, yeah. um, you know, a lot of different things. And he was a parole officer at one point in his life. So he's got some interesting stories to kind of break up all the historical stuff with that. Um, yeah, he's a great human. That's very cool. So if I wanted to um, order a couple bottles of wine from you guys, do I just uh, Google Clearwater Canyon Cellars, find your phone number, and place an order? Mm-hmm. Or you can just give me your credit card number now over this. Uh, <laughs> just write it down. Four, six, seven, we'll seven. Your credit card. We'll, we'll get the number off it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so people, um, they literally can just roll up during our curbside hours and make an order right there in the parking lot. It doesn't need, you know, they don't need to think ahead or, you know, it can be impulsive. What, which, what were those hours again? It's so from, t- so Tuesday through Saturday, nine o'clock until noon. And then we take a two hour siesta. Um, <laughs> and then it from two to six, we're back at it. Cool. Um, yep. And then are you also able to purchase your wine off the shelf somewhere? Or are you guys stocked anywhere like grocery stores or anything like that around? Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, usually only places that have a dedicated um, wine steward or, you know, the, a lot of the restaurants in town, the, uh, the great smokes and suds here in the valley, they know their stuff. They know us. They know our story. They are um, the preeminent wine shop down here in the Elsie Valley. And um, Primeland does pretty good. And too. Primeland, those guys, again, I mean, they... Oh, wow. Dave O'Donnell and that whole team, they know they are wine stewards. They, they know our story. And that is exactly what we're talking about. Like having our wine and a shelf with people that care and know us kind of that qualifies for us. So, um, in some of the little towns, um, you can find us like up in Orfino, um, Kuski, you know, these little towns, they're super excited about local wine. And if you ask someone who's working in those stores, they will, get all, you know, tell you the story of the local wines and us and the, and the wines. It's been pretty neat. And, um, and we do ship, um, for free to club members, which is key. I love free shipping. I think we all do. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So yeah, pretty important these days. Very cool. 
so like I said, also have you guys haven't been in the game so long. Would you have any sort of advice for somebody that's looking to sort of get into the industry here in the Valley if they were wanting to start a winery? Man. I, I've got a couple. Be ready for a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm one of the hats I wear. Um, so I'm the president of the Lewis Clark Valley Wine Alliance, which is really important for people to get involved with. If they're here in the Valley and they have any aspirations of starting a winery or vineyard, they should get involved with the Wine Alliance. Um, and it can be as simple as just contacting us and getting their email added to our contact list. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a paid member to, um, to get involved. Um, we have meetings routinely, and it's really just to, the idea of the Wine Alliance, um, there's really two goals, to have three great meetings a year where we just bring everybody together, learn some things. We have a simple agenda and, and to just keep that cohesiveness and communication with everyone. Um, that, you know, being able to be together and have a cohesive like family of local vintners and grape growers is it's cheap. It's free. I mean, we can do that. Um, we have a pretty low budget, but the um, main, so beyond that, the other thing we do is the wine festival in April. And that's kind of our money generating um, activity. Um, and of course that got canceled this year. So that was scheduled for April and that's kind of our marketing piece. So we have like the educational piece, the camaraderie piece and the marketing piece. And that hope with the wine festival is that we bring people from, from far away to come in and, and tour. Um, but yeah, if someone's trying to get into the wine in industry, that would be the first thing. Get in touch with us at the wine, um, Lewis Clark Valley Wine Alliance. And um, yeah, be prepared for a ton of work. If you're thinking I'm going to retire and take it easy and like have this wonderful sail off into the sunset wine experience, it's probably not real. Um, it's a lot of work, um, but it is fulfilling. I mean, obviously we're doing it and we're loving it. Um, and I think probably kind of along the same lines as the Wine Alliance, like it, we are all friends and the more friendly and the more open they can be with all of us about what they're doing, we definitely do not want to see people fail. None of us do. And so um, I think sometimes people are like a little intimidated if they're like wanting to go live with this business idea, whatever it is, but especially in the wine business, like get involved, come to us, the more like open they are with all of us, the more we can save them from making all the stupid mistakes that the rest of us did. <laughs> um, so that would be my advice. We're pretty friendly. We won't be like, no, yeah. um, no. I mean, we're going to try and like sabotage you. That's not real. <laughs> well, and that's, that's so cool that you have sort of this culture and community built in because, you know, a lot of people like yourselves, when you started, there was just nothing. There was right. There was no resource. There was nobody to say, hey, what about this? Or, man, I really blew it on this. What should I have done different? So that's that's really cool. And it's also really neat that you're able to have a hand in shaping the culture and the community around around wine in the Lewis Clark Valley. That's pretty cool. The way we always describe it is like if you look at the wine, the wine drink in the, in the world, the wine industry, that market is a big, huge pie the slice of pie that the vintners here in the Valley occupy does not, it's not even a percentage. It's some ridiculous grain of sand. It's a crumb. <laughs> and so for, for the vintners here in the Valley to 
to fight or not, you know, to have all this, to, to fight with each other over that grain of sand is, is ludicrous. And so for us to be together and united to fight for the rest of the pie is way more logical or expand the pie in general, get more people drinking wine. Those are more um, meaningful endeavors, I guess. And, and from a practical standpoint too, um, anyone planting even one vine in their yard stands to endanger the entire industry if they don't do it well and if they don't manage it well and spray it properly. And so there's also the self-serving part of it of like, if you are anyone planting a grape in their valley, they have an obligation really to us that are commercially growing grapes to reach out, talk to us, be part of this conversation or take the damn vine out of the soil. <laughs> Honest to God, because it's, we're not playing around anymore. I mean, this is, this is real. We yeah. Have what was that little bug? We were that root mite you were talking about earlier or whatever. That's yeah, not, that's, mm-hmm. those, those guys we don't want another round of those coming around. it's here no it's it's here actually and probably um it it's a it just kind of exploded here in the pacific northwest here in the last year a few years we don't really know but it's um it wasn't even a conversation and last fall it became a sudden conversation and it's things like that that um you know people have to be super aware of it's just like if you know if you're around a bunch of apple orchards and you plant an apple tree in your backyard you're suddenly connected to that farmer and you know you gotta realize what you're doing right oh kind of scary but i hate to bring it down on like get all serious (laughs) but um but so i mean and but we need more grapes we need more people to grow grapes well, yeah, you're not discouraging people. You're just encouraging people to uh, to come and, and say, hey, you guys have done this for a long time. What should I do? Because you've got yeah. the knowledge and you're willing to share it and you're happy to share it. And as Drew said, it just helps build this greater sense of community. So it doesn't help to go off on your own and isolate and all that stuff. So no, it's, it's good. definitely it's not. Good. Um, you might be safer from COVID. but Well, for now. <laughs> but, but definitely it'd be better off for your vines. And I mean, there's, there's wineries here in the Valley that are hungry to buy grapes. Um, I, I know that... That, you know, Carl and I kind of have a good deal here with having the vineyard and, and the winery and being a state grow, you know, having so much estate fruit. We got in early, so we kind of got a chance and that isn't a, you know, a real asset. But some of these newer wineries, I know from talking to them that they are excited to use locally grown grapes too. They just haven't gotten the access as much as we have. And um, we don't have any to sell or we would. I mean, there have been years where we had more fruit than what we needed and we sold them to Mike and Melissa at Coulter's and um, Mary Sellers and Pondere Winery, but we just don't have excess right now. Um, so if someone's looking at it and they're like serious, they want to grow a healthy, beautiful vineyard, like we're all excited to help them do that. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I just have like a rapid fire round of questions that I wanted to ask you guys. Go for it. Um, Oh, no, this is like, should we start ducking? Uh, they, they maybe won't be wine specific or even valley specific, but we always like to ask people, uh, yes. uh, what, what's, what's your favorite band? What have you guys been listening to at the moment? Ooh, um, we're huge REM fans, especially the old stuff. Um, Fitting for now. It's the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were like, I feel fine. Rusted Root. Rusted Root. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, the National. Um, 
we've been listening to a lot. Rachel Riddle, our sales, uh, sales and wine club. She, uh, she got us into that. Um, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. Um, that was like Pearl Jam 10. Yeah, that was a good one. Is like the, the soundtrack of my youth. So you asked us for one. Sorry. Our favorite, right? No, you can you can list a, a variety of responses there. I, I'm I'm okay with that. We were just uh, we always kind of ask like what what music do people like in general, just to kind of get a feel of who you are as a person. I think a little bit better. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty. That's a pretty pretty good yeah. right there. Yeah, cool. we've been doing a lot of kind of like easy listening music. Nothing, that makes us so boring, Carl. I know. Yeah. I, I know. Well, like hello music. No, it's nice. Well, Everybody needs a little bit of a calm down time here. I think that the anxiety levels are a little bit high on in general. So a little bit of easy listening makes sense at this. Uh, current time. Like, yeah. like Philip Glass is actually a common um, artist that we listen to when we're stressed out and jamming through a ton of like legal paperwork or whatever. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, what, what have you guys been watching since, since uh, quarantine came into place? Uh, we don't, mostly so, zoom yeah, yeah we are watching people on zoom we actually don't watch much tv I and mean, we have a television in our house uh-huh. um down in the basement in our in our midden, <laughs> in your midden. any good books then um oh, no. so well actually so we've legal been re- documents that re- what is that giant um <laughs> like the grape encyclopedia. So it's like this ah. giant book that has, um, it's, not, it's an encyclopedia though. It's the grape. Uh, it's like a compendium of like all the grape varieties in the world and way more information than you'd ever want to know about each one of them. But at night we, um, kind of thumb through, we've been thumbing through that and kind of reading out of it to each other. Um, it tells like not only the genetic story of, the parentage of these grapes, but also some of the folklore, you know, like, so what's been said about the parentage and then what is actually the parentage and how does that work together? And, you know, um, you know, where the wine's made or grapes grown across the world. It's pretty, pretty interesting. That's it's so not cool. You read cover to cover though. No, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds all right. It, well, what that does, what that tells me is that if I'm any, any bit interested in wine, the best thing to do would be to go to Clearwater Canyon Cellars, <laughs> try some wine, you know, whenever that's available to do, and then uh, just talk to you guys about grapes because you're very knowledgeable and that's awesome. And I just want to say thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us on this podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I suppose if there's anything you want to leave us with, you can, but, but thank you very much for coming in. Yeah. Thanks guys. Well, coming, coming in, streaming in. I don't know. Yeah. We're streaming in. Uh, We're just super excited about you guys and the fact that you both chose to come back to the Valley and do what you're doing. And it's fun for us to see other people be passionate about the Lewis Clark Valley because we are and it it is just so awesome when we have like a younger couple come in the tasting room like oh we just moved here um or people who have chosen to retire here it just makes my heart so happy yeah that's what the whole podcast is about good job you guys (laughs) awesome thank you all right (laughs) I think that's going to do it for us, guys. Thanks again for coming on the show. We'd we'd love to have you back anytime. Cool. 
Maybe uh, uh, maybe Carl could bring a worm. Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> this episode of the show is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. Get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already, and thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶